Good morning. Well, I um, hope you're doing well. hope you're feeling well. It's uh, a joy and a privilege to be gathered together uh, this morning and um, be lifting our voices. Um, thank you for singing. We have good reason to sing. Salvation has been accomplished. Redemption has been secured. All of it has been taken care of by the person and work of Christ. And so we celebrate. We have our identity in him. We encourage one another in that uh, incredible good news. And that's what we're going to talk about for a few minutes this morning. So um, let's get into it. We, we began a short series recently that takes different passages in the New Testament uh, where there is a preposition attached to the name of Jesus Christ. And passages such as those kind of give us uh, a way to explore our relationship with Christ from different angles, different ways of looking at it. So, for example, through Christ our Lord, or under Christ our Lord, or in Christ, and so on. And so today we come to with Christ our Lord. The series is called the Christ series, simply, as Pastor Gary has titled it. And the text for this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, I would love it if you would turn there with me. Colossians chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 4 as we, as we explore this concept this morning. So Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, allow me to just read this for us this morning. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. It's obvious why this passage was selected to help us think about what it means to be with Christ our Lord. The Apostle Paul uh, teaches us that Christians, by God's grace and, and by the power of the gospel, we have died with Christ. And we have been raised with Christ and we live with Christ and we will appear with Christ. And as we unpack what's here for us this morning, I'd like to highlight just three teachings we can find in the passage, three uh, ideas, three points for this morning. Number one, we'll look at, uh, we'll talk about a Christian's focus. Number two, a Christian's foundation. And thirdly, a Christian's future. So those three things this morning, a Christian's focus, foundation, and future. All right, so first, a Christian's focus. Um, You look at verses 1 and 2, you see Paul teaches Christian believers where their focus ought to be in this life. Because we've been raised with Christ, Paul says, seek the things that are above, where he is. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. 
And we read those words, you may pick up on this, that there's a a kind of heavenly-mindedness that Paul is talking about, that Paul has in mind, a kind of heavenly-mindedness. And certainly, when we think of heavenly-mindedness, this has been terribly misunderstood and greatly criticized, scrutinized in secular culture. Have you ever heard the saying, uh, it goes something like, um, don't be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good? Have you heard that? When 19th century philosopher Karl Marx said that religion is the opiate of the masses, what he meant was, among other things, religious belief can serve as a distraction, an escape from reality. Reality is that this world is cold and bleak and dark and it's filled with pain and suffering and religious belief can serve as a, uh, an escape for people who are too weak to really face reality. And so in kind of a secular philosophy of life, uh, would claim that uh, this is irresponsible to just live a life where you're detached from reality and, and you're so heavenly-minded it actually robs you of living life to the full and facing reality and just in the face of the cold and the bleak, of reality, just living the best you can anyway. Uh, in, uh, Richard Dawkins is uh, one of the most outspoken, outspoken atheists in the world today. Um, he wrote uh, the landmark book, The God Delusion. And he argues like this. Uh, Dawkins says, if you're an atheist, you know, you believe that this life is the only life you're going to get. It's a precious life. It's a beautiful life. It's something we should live to the full, to the end of our days. Where if you're religious and you believe in another life somehow, that means you don't live this life to the full because you think you're going to get another one. That's an awfully negative way to live a life. Being an atheist frees you up to live this life properly, happily, and fully. And so typically, when we think of people who are heavenly-minded, setting their minds on things that are above, when, when culture thinks about uh, people who are heavenly-minded, we think of people who are out of touch, esoteric, right? Detached from reality, unable to really live the kind of a life to the full that Dawkins describes and says we ought to live. We think of people who are so heavenly-minded indeed that they're no earthly good. But that's not what Paul's talking about, you may have guessed. That's not what he has in mind. That's not the picture he's trying to portray when he calls us to have our focus heavenward. Um, In fact, Paul really is saying those who are most heavenly-minded are actually the most earthly good. They get, you know, think about this. They don't get bitter, even though bad things happen to them. Uh, they don't get worried, even though things happen. They live their lives with, uh, with, this, with this power and this freedom. Really, Paul would, would say the only way to be of, er- of any earthly good is to be increasingly heavenly-minded. And how can that be? Well, let's go back and we'll, we'll consider the secular alternative, alternative once again. Uh, the uh, secular alternative for understanding life and the universe. We can imagine with John Lennon. Remember his famous song? One of his famous songs? 
Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Let's take Lenin's advice and actually imagine that. Okay, let's actually, let's stop for a second and let's look at that narrative of reality and ask, what does that mean? In a world that, um, where if this world is all there is, in that world, then does it really make any difference at all how I live? Like, any real ultimate difference, whether I live a life of compassion or cruelty, who cares? In Lenin's universe, when we die, we rot, right? And nobody is going to remember anything that happens. All of, um, you know, there's going to be a day where the, the sun burns up and the, the earth burns up in the sun and all civilization will cease forever and nobody's going to remember anything that happened, anything that went, went, uh, that went on here. Um, all of our deepest longings that we all share for meaning and purpose and joy and justice and love, all of those are nothing more than temporary, arbitrary illusions because we're just bags of meat spinning around blindly through time and space. There's no higher purpose or meaning to any of this. Here's an atheist fortune cookie. It's offered to us. Listen to this. This is offered to us by author Nate Wilson. He is a children's author by trade, but he's written a few nonfiction books. And he offers this atheist fortune cookie. It goes like this. There is only the material world. Don't ask me where hyperhydrogen came from, but I'm pretty sure it blew up because I'm here, I think. The laws of nature and reality and logic and morality are non-binding and are merely internal descriptions of the accidental explosion by another part of that same explosion and are likely to further explode or implode into something else as stuff continues to splatter around. You have no soul, and love and loyalty are chemical byproducts of the accident and have no authority as the explosion neglected to accidentally create any. You have no purpose, no deeper meaning, and are no more valuable than any other mobile composting machine, engulfing and expelling until you are engulfed and expelled. You're not important. Your molecules prefer fragmenting to binding and will inevitably and absolutely fly apart. Also, you should be open to new opportunities this month. Now, regardless of what you say you believe, regardless of where you're from or what your culture, cultural background is or what your professed beliefs are, I would argue that all of us, all of us, desire a life with meaning and purpose, real meaning and purpose. We all know the difference between right and wrong. Intuitively, I have young children. I didn't need to teach them how to discern whether something is good or bad. They just know that. We intrinsically have this awareness of right and wrong. We all know that morality is not ultimately relative. We all sense an obligation to do good instead of evil, and we all know the difference. We all know what is good and what is evil. We all have this obligation, and we sense it to live a life of compassion instead of cruelty. Okay, so the big million-dollar question for this morning is, what worldview 
What philosophy of life can best account for all this? Christian philosophers have done us a great service in pointing out these things and showing how a biblical worldview actually makes the most sense out of our human experience in these ways. One scholar recently argued that otherworldliness Uh, or heavenly-mindedness, it's the same thing, otherworldliness, just a different word for heavenly-mindedness. He says, otherworldliness is escapism only if there is no other world. If there is, it's worldliness that's escapism. And with that line of thinking, the whole discussion gets flipped around. According to the biblical narrative of reality, We were created for a world without sin and without death, without brokenness and suffering. We were made for that world. And through the person and work of Christ, God has promised to eventually bring restoration to his broken creation, all of it. And he invites us to be part of that restoration. Romans 8 says, all of creation groans for redemption. You know, the fall of man in Genesis 3 or as I've heard it recently titled, um, we usually call it the fall, uh, right? Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creates everything. It's good, it's wonderful, it's perfect. And then Genesis 3 is the fall. I heard it recently described as uh, Genesis 3 is the declaration of independence. It's our declaration of independence from God, from his authority, from his lordship. And the effect, the effects that that, Declaration of independence that that fall brought about were pervasive, massive. All of creation was affected. It wasn't just personal mistakes that we make. The ground was cursed. And so Paul says in Romans, all creation groans for redemption. And the entire story of the Bible is about how God, through Christ, is working to rebuild and redeem his creation, all of it, his kingdom. And he invites us to be a part of it. And a Christian's focus is that. Christians look to the promises of God and they rest in the person and work of Christ and they await the day when these promises will be fully realized as they set their focus on things that are above, where Christ is, as they set their focus on Christ and his reign over the universe. And in the meantime, in our temporary lives on this not yet redeemed earth, we've got work to do. And armed with the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, we are called as salt and light in a dark world to be a foretaste. We're called to be a foretaste, a picture of that future redemption. That means active involvement in this world. That means getting our hands dirty, facing reality, and being involved in it with our ultimate identity in Christ, with our ultimate identity in the world to come. This does not mean escapism. It does not mean uh, withdrawing from culture and the world around us. It means the opposite of this. In fact, C.S. Lewis probably says this better than anybody in uh, mere Christianity. Listen to this. He says, A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism. He says, uh, or or it's not a form of wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is just simply meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those 
who thought most of the next. And Lewis says, memorably, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. That's what Paul means when he says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. In other words, you're already doing this. Everybody's already doing this. Everybody's setting their mind and heart on things, but they're down here. To set your mind on something is to make it your life. And Paul is saying, don't don't make anything down here. Don't make anything here on earth your life, the core of your being, your ultimate source for meaning and purpose, the the center of your universe. Don't make anything uh, here on earth your life. Make him your life. Diagnostic question. What objects or things or people in your life, if you lost them, would make you feel as though you don't have a life left? What things do you turn to when things get difficult? What do you really rely on? Paul encourages us, exhorts us. He says, set your mind on Christ, who is your life, he says in verse 4. Seek the things that are above Everyone is always seeking. What we seek is what dominates and shapes our lives. What we seek is what, uh, it just determines what we think about. It determines how we spend time and the decisions and choices we make. And the power of the Christian life, and this is power, the power of the Christian life is that having been raised with Christ, our seeking is given a whole new direction. Seek the things that are above. Look upward. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, Psalm 24 says. Quick story. Uh, I uh, work with the young adult group, uh, a group of 20-somethings, some, some of them almost 30 or a little after that, um, young professionals around Sheboygan. We meet Tuesday nights, and one week recently, a, while, a little while back, we had the privilege of having a guest speaker. It was kind of a Q&A. And there was a moment where he was kind of reflecting on uh, the tendency these days for younger people, or anybody these days anyway, to be so tied up in their technology that their heads are always down. And he knows that this is a world of iPads and iPods and iPhones and i this or that and the other. And he knows we've all got our heads down and we're not talking to each other and uh, relationships are suffering and all these things. He thinks there ought to be a text message given to these people that says, lift up your heads. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, quoting Psalm 24. Lift up your head. Look upward. In other words, wake up. Look to the skies and realize there's something much bigger than all of this going on here. Set your mind on things that are above. Recognize that there is a sovereign God over all creation and you're accountable to him. And he's here. He's present. He's working. And as we do that, we're given real earthly perspective. We are enabled to truly live this life to the fullest. As we do that, It's not all meaningless. We know that there's a heavenly king who is sovereign over everything. That is a Christian's focus. Our certainty of the world to come gives us poise and courage in the midst of the uncertainties of this world. We can face 
today as children of tomorrow. We can face the reality of today with the perspective of tomorrow. Christians have been raised with Christ, and so our focus is on him, his eternal rule. Nothing in this world can be too much to handle when that is our focus. So we've been raised with Christ. That's kind of verses 1 and 2, by the way. And now you move on to verse 3, and it says, We have died, and our life is hidden with Christ in God. What does that mean? That brings us to our second point this morning, a Christian's foundation. Essentially, the teaching here is that what has happened to Christ has happened to us through our union with Christ through faith. Do you understand that? This is absolutely one of the most remarkable and glorious truths of the gospel. It's life-changing, it's radical, it's hard to wrap our minds around it. Verse 1 says, if then you've been raised, or uh, since you've been raised, Paul is basically saying, since you're there, think of yourself as there. The same is true in verse 3. For you have died. What's that mean? You know what that means? That means everything that is actually true of Christ is legally true of you. God treats you as if you are free from the guilt of your sins, as if you died on the cross to pay for them. Why? Because you did. What? How? Because he did. That's what it means to be with Christ our Lord. This is our union with Christ. He stepped in and did for us what we could never do ourselves, and his work and the victory he accomplished is given to us, granted to us by grace through faith in him alone. What happened to Christ has happened to us through our union with him. The doctrine of justification says that despite our sin, God declares us righteous, We are declared righteous. It's a change of legal status before a holy God. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake, God made him who knew no sin, referring to Jesus, his son, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the great exchange. Stott says, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The, ups- uh, the, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. This is a Christian's foundation. It's the foundational truth That salvation has been accomplished. Full and eternal forgiveness is offered to us freely. The redemption is promised and secured even when we don't feel it. It was never up to us. The holy God of the universe demands perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness are the demands. Nothing short of it for us to have a restored relationship to our creator. You know it. I know it. We all know we don't measure up intrinsically in your heart of hearts. You're aware of that. And the good news is, the gospel is the good news that in Christ we are given a perfect righteousness so that that demand can be met 
can be satisfied. It's a foreign righteousness. It's not ours. It's not our own. Yet it becomes ours. It's given to us. We've died with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. Everything that is true of Jesus becomes true of us through our union with him. Christians so often struggle with an identity crisis. Do you know what I'm talking about? I know that the Bible teaches that salvation has been accomplished and uh, that Jesus did it all. And I know that there's nothing I could do to add to his work. There's nothing I could do to subtract from his work. But you know what? Life gets hard and it's tough. I fall back into sinful struggle. I fall back into the selfishness and pride of my former life apart from Christ. I fall back and I struggle daily against the flesh. And I I know in my heart, I know that I continue to deserve condemnation because I'm not perfect, far from it. And I forget that my salvation was already accomplished and is already secure. I forget to live as if that's true. I forget to live in light of my new identity. I start to think that I've got to contribute to the work of my salvation. I start to think that I've got to clean myself up in order to be acceptable to God. I start to think that I've got to pay for some of my mistakes, and I forget who I really am as a Christian. A 16th century Lutheran clergyman once said, The world knows neither Christ nor Christians, but neither do Christians really know themselves. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright said, Learning to believe what doesn't at the moment feel true is an essential part of being a Christian. Are you getting that? If you say, Lord Jesus, I'm a Christian, please answer this prayer because I'm trying my very, very best to do what you said. I'm trying my very, very best to behave. I'm trying my very best to to live a life like you've asked me. I'm trying my very best to ask you to forgive my sins. You haven't gotten it yet. You haven't gotten it yet. To be a Christian is to say, Lord Jesus, accept me, hear my prayer, whatever, because of what you did. The foundation of a Christian is not saying, please accept me, on the basis of how hard I'm trying to be faithful, on the basis of my own goodness, but rather saying, accept me. Accept me on the basis of your goodness, your faithfulness. Friends, this is the great difference between the gospel and all other religions, all other systems of thought, all other philosophies of life, all other worldviews. This is the difference between the gospel and all other faith systems. Uh, Every other religion, all forms of religion, formal or informal, are spelled the same way. As different as they look, they're all spelled D-O. Do versus done. They're spelled D-O because they tell us that we have to perform good works and obey moral laws and religious laws in order to find God. We have to do those things in order to uh, receive forgiveness or achieve nirvana or peace, etc., whatever. But you'll never be sure that you've done enough. Even after a life of, of, uh, of, of hard faithfulness and, and all your best effort, you still aren't going to be completely sure that you've done enough. Christianity is spelled differently. The gospel is spelled D-O-N-E, right? You've heard this before because God sent his son to earth to live the life of perfection, 
that you should live. And to die on the cross in your place, he paid the debt for the sins that we've committed, for the wrongs we've done. Buddha said, strive without ceasing. Jesus the Christ said, it is finished. And to become a Christian is to turn from do to done by asking God to accept you for Jesus' sake, based on his goodness, and you commit to live for him. You have died, Paul says, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That is a Christian's foundation. Moreover, it's important to notice that this foundation and this identity is comprehensive in its scope in the Christian life. Christian renewal isn't some add-on. It's not, this isn't a social club. This isn't just some uh, aspect of your life that may be important to you, uh, but it just fits in with all the others. We don't simply add a layer of good Christian values and put it over top of your old self. That's not what's going on. This is why Paul refers to believers in 2 Corinthians 5. He refers to believers as new creations. We're not simply improved creations. Creations 2.0 or anything like that. We are completely remade. We are completely remade by the Spirit through the Son for the Father, the Gospel is the work of the triune God, remember, in bringing us back to himself, reconciling us to himself. He does all of this. And so Paul doesn't say, just put on some new clothes over top of your old ones. No, the old must be stripped off and thrown away. For you have died, to quote Paul. The new life only comes on the other side of a death. As we trust Christ, His death becomes our death. In the weight of glory, Lewis says, a crucifixion of the natural self, that's the passport to everlasting life. Nothing that has not died will be resurrected. And that takes us to our final point this morning. A Christian's future. So we've looked at a Christian's focus, and we've looked at a Christian's foundation, you might notice there's kind of a present, past, future thing going on here. A Christian's focus is present tense. Uh, A Christian's foundation is is past tense, the finished work of Christ. It is finished. And then verse 4 describes every Christian's future. The past experience of dying with Christ and being raised with him is the basis for our present status as people whose heavenly identity is real and is secure, but it's hidden and it's an identity that will be gloriously manifested in the future. It is a fact that, you, um, that the way you live in the present will be determined by what you believe about the future. What you believe about the future will determine how you live in the present. I can prove it. With an illustration. Uh, Well, there's an illustration that at least supports this, and it goes like this. You put two guys in a room, and it's the same room, and you sit them at a table, and uh, for 10 hours a day, they have to do some very, very boring, tedious, monotonous job, and so let's just say stamping papers over and over again. And you know what? Let's make it 12 hours a day, every day, 
stamping papers over and over and over and over and over again. Same room, same situation, two guys doing this, but here's the catch. The first guy is told that at the end of the year of, at the end of one year of doing this, he will be paid the annual salary of $20,000. Okay, and the other guy is told that at the end of one year of doing this, he will be paid the annual salary of $20 million. And you know what's going to happen? What happens? What, what happens with the first guy? Maybe after a month or two, perhaps not even that long, he just throws up his hands and he says, I quit. I can't take this. This is too tedious and I'm just not making enough money for this to be remotely worth it. I don't need this. I was making more at my old job. And he quits. But what about the other guy? Is he going to quit? No. You know, he's probably whistling while he works. He's probably enjoying it. He's probably saying, you know, I don't find this tedious at all. What's going on? They are experiencing the same circumstances in two completely different ways because of what they believe about the future. It makes all the difference. Do you believe that when you die, you rot? That this world is all there is? As we've said, at the end of time, all civilization will cease forever, and no one's going to remember anything that anyone has ever done. In other words, Hitler, he got away with it. You, anything you could do, uh, no big deal. Who cares? It's all going to burn up. No one's going to remember anything. Or do you believe in a new heaven and a new earth? Do you believe in a final judgment day? Do you believe that no one's going to get away with anything? That all that is bad will be put right? Do you believe that, Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory? And therefore, everything you do right now counts forever. These are two radically different things to believe about the future, And there will be huge differences in the way you live presently, depending on what you believe. A Christian's future is the reality of an eternal hope that we have in Christ. Please understand, it is far more than just floating off to heaven when you die. It is far more than just floating up into the sky and maybe you get your own cloud and harp. The story of the Bible is about how through Christ... God is restoring his entire creation. He's redeeming his kingdom, his creation, and he invites you and I to be part of that total restoration. We mentioned that what is true of Christ in his death is true of us, but the same is true of his resurrection. In other words, what happened to Jesus in his resurrection from the dead will also happen to the people he came to redeem. The Bible teaches that resurrection is coming. Real, actual, physical, material resurrection. That's what Paul's talking about when he points us to the future return of Christ. When he appears, then we also will appear with him, with Christ our Lord, in glory. This is absolutely the greatest news imaginable. It's almost too good to be true. It's almost hard to believe Because it's so good. In a world full of disappointment, in a world full of regret and pain and suffering and death, 
Jesus came and he conquered sin and death forever. And with him, death doesn't have to be the final word for us either. Our days are numbered. We can say with the psalmist, Show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. But in the bleak, cold face of death, in the face of death, Jesus the Christ breaks into the darkness and he says something to us, something earth-shattering, something powerful, something almost too good to be true. But it's true. Jesus says to us, we read it in John 11, in the face of death, Jesus breaks into the darkness and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. This is why Paul says in Romans 6, just to give you a glimpse at a couple other passages that could have been used this morning for with Christ our Lord. Paul says in Romans 6, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Life after death, not on a cloud, but actual real life. In Romans 8, Paul says, we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we, that we may also be glorified with him. And in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 to 21, it's kind of a parallel passage to Colossians 3, 4. Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What happened to Christ in the resurrection will happen to those he came to redeem. uh, John Piper writes about this in his book, Future Grace. He says, Christianity is not a platonic religion that sees material things as mere shadows of reality or as bad things, things that must be thrown off as soon as possible. Piper says, not the mere immortality of the soul, but rather the resurrection of the body and the renewal of all creation. That's the hope of the Christian faith. And that is a Christian's future. Don't you see how this hope of glory answers all of the deepest longings of our hearts? All of them. We've talked about them, our intuitive sense of morality and justice our intuitive sense of right and wrong, our thirst for meaning, our longing for significance and meaning and purpose, all of it, we all share it, and we all come up with all sorts of different views of the world and worldviews and philosophies. We all come up with different ways of trying to make sense of it all, trying to uh, explain it, trying to satisfy it. All of it points to this. All of these longings, all of these desires, the, the deepest longings of our hearts, the thirsts and yearnings of our soul, all of it points to this. All of this points to, and it finds its fulfillment, finds its ultimate satisfaction in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Nowhere else. Nothing else is ultimately going to quench that thirst, satisfy these longings, and give us the answer for these hopes and these, 
and these thirsts and longings. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, Augustine says. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And when we find our ultimate rest in Christ, when that happens, this future uh, restoration, this future redemption, this future resurrection is ours. And we can know that what is broken will be repaired. What is twisted will be made straight. What is corrupted will be cleansed. Everything will be put right. We were made for a world without any of the stain of sin, death, and suffering, and disease. And uh, it's not here, and it's almost too good to be true. We can't imagine what a world would be like uh, in that way. But yet, that's the world that is promised, and we know that through Christ it's coming. As the story of the Bible begins to come to an end in the book of Revelation, and we await the return of our Savior to do this, it says every tear is going to be wiped away. Everything bad will come undone. Everything bad will be put right. One of the great uh, English Puritans reflected on this future and wrote, There shall be as great a difference between your present state now and your state then as there is between brass and gold, or as between wood and brass. Then the joy shall be such as no eye has seen or ear heard. It is this future, my friends, and it is our identification with Christ and his work on our behalf that thrusts us into this world. It is this hope and this heavenward focus that pushes us into this world and uh, gets us uh, involved in it with a heavenly mindedness, not a heavenly mindedness that becomes an opiate for us pulling us away from reality. Karl Marx might have been right about some strands of religious belief, but he wasn't right about the true gospel. This pushes us into the heart of reality, and it it, it causes us to get our hands dirty in sacrificial service toward others, all for God's glory, knowing that every decision we make matters eternally. With Christ our Lord, we've explored a Christian's focus and a Christian's foundation and the future that is sure for the followers of Christ. So would you stand and we will close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the love that you have for us. We thank you for the forgiveness we've received. For those here who haven't yet received that forgiveness, I pray they would see something of what it means, just a glimpse of what it means to know Christ, to be with Christ our Lord, that everything we've ever done wrong can be forgiven, everything. And it's better than that, Father, we thank you that everything that we could ever do wrong and haven't even done yet has been taken care of. Everything we've ever done that alienates us from you, our rebellion against you, all of it, past, present, and future, has been wiped away, taken care of, and we can be forgiven. We can stand before you, and we can have this assurance that you see us as righteous, not because we are, but because a foreign righteousness, the righteousness of your son Jesus, has been given to us. How could we ever deserve that? We can't. And yet we thank you that it's ours. I pray, Father, that as we are gathered together, that we would be encouraged 
under the authority of your word, that we would uh, recognize areas in our life where there remains unbelief, where there remains the seeds of rebellion, and that we would submit ourselves to the lordship of Christ, and that as we scatter, as we disperse into this world, you would call us and, and help us by the power of your spirit to be the kinds of people in this world you want us to be, ambassadors, salt and light, actively involved, actively engaged in the world around us, in the culture around us, pointing others to the hope we have in Christ, sharing the good news, that the world around us would see something of your glory and your saving grace in Christ when they look at us. It is in his name that we pray these things. Amen.